let us pray together. And before we do, I, I just observe last, sermon, last week's sermon was a little shorter than usual, and you know the minutes roll over to the next sermon. So I just thought I'd let you know. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your words probe our weaknesses and our failings. We're not as good at, not very good at holding on truth and living it well. Uh, we swerve off to one error or towards its opposite. And this section exposes just such an area of danger that is very real and very practical to each one of us. You will teach us, do help us to learn and to see the application and not to forget it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remind you that in Matthew 11 and 12 we have three cycles and each of the three breaks down into three parts and they show the rising clash between Jesus and the leaders of the nation. Uh, the first cycle in chapter 11, and chapter 11 is all the first cycle, uh, shows those who are blind to Jesus' works. And each of these cycles has the two parts illustrating the problem and then closes with a part of appeal. And, and, and chapter 11 was just like that, featuring people blind to the works of Jesus and their significance. Now we're looking at the second cycle in chapter 12, and it shows people who are deaf to God's word, blind to Christ's works in chapter 11, deaf to God's word in the first part of chapter 12. And the focus of this section is on the Sabbath. Jesus invites us to rest at the end of chapter 11, and then suddenly we have two stories using the word Sabbath eight times, eight out of the 11 times Matthew uses the word in his whole gospel. So obviously that Sabbath rest is a focus here. And um, let me shift gears a little bit, because I, I, not, not exactly, but this section is showing how, how deaf they are to God's word. So let me shift gears and ask you to think of the verses that called us to worship. When we start at 1045, there's a call to worship from Scripture. It's important that you be here for the whole service, starting there. The answer was given uh, in the call to worship to the question I'm about to ask. What does Jesus say are the two most important commandments in the law? The first is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second commandment is what? to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, now coming back to our chapter, why would a Pharisee say that he was such a beast on insisting that the Sabbath be observed exactly correctly? What would he, what would he say motivated him? Well, he'd say love for God motivates him to honor God's Sabbath. But in the first section, Jesus showed that that was not the case at all, didn't he? It wasn't love for God at all, as they objected to the disciples eating some wheat or barley from the field they're walking through, because he takes them straight to Scripture and says, David, the man after God's heart, takes bread he wasn't allowed to eat, and God doesn't judge him for that. The priest allows that. In fact, God himself makes priests work every Sabbath. They profane the Sabbath, Jesus says, but they're not judged for that. So no, it's not love for God that makes them the way they are. In fact, the third thing that he points out is if you had loved God, then when I told you to go study Hosea 6.6, 6, where God says what he wants, and what does God say? I want mercy, very good, and not sacrifice, then you would not have persecuted those who were guiltless. But they did not 
care about what God wanted. They cared about something else. So they are complete failures when it comes to the first commandment. They're deaf to God's word there. What about the second? What about love for neighbor? Well, I'm going to show you that's the focus of this story, that they also have no love for their neighbor. So I, I just, studying this and thinking about it, it seemed to me that I've done this before. The simplest way is simply to expound the verses to you and then draw out the application of the verses. So first, the exposition. Verses 9 and 10 bring us to the setup. And the word could be true in two senses. At the very least, it's the setup because it sets the story up. It's it's the, the, the setting and the backdrop of the story. But many commentators feel that it was a setup. Um... Calvin and others believe, suggest anyway, that they think that the Pharisees put this man with the withered hand there to provoke Jesus to break the Sabbath with a healing. Well, the text doesn't say so, and it's very, it's possible, but I don't know if it was that kind of a setup, but that is certainly what they used the situation for. So the setup in verses 9 through 10, the first thing we see in verse 9 is, uh, I'll read the verse, And he moved on from there and came into their synagogue. Oh, such a simple verse. How many times have you read it? But have you ever connected it with verse 7? What what did verse 7 say? Jesus says to them in verse 7, something greater than the temple is here. And what's a synagogue? It's just a building where people meet, read the law, worship, fellowship together. So what do we have when we have Jesus entering a synagogue? We have something greater than the temple walking into a humble synagogue. Just simple people gathered together and there is God incarnate in their midst. Greater than the grand, beautiful temple in Jerusalem walking right into their synagogue. Well, what a grand privilege and completely unrecognized. Nobody sees it for what it is the day of the visitation of God in their midst, and nobody sees it. Well, how are they going to treat this august guest? God Himself has walked in in the person of His Son. How will they treat the Son of God? What an opportunity to learn. What an opportunity to grow, to worship, to lay hold of God in a real way. Surely, they will exploit this opportunity. It is a once in an eternity opportunity. But what do they do? Verse 10, we see a startling announcement with a black backdrop. And the first thing Matthew tells us is, shows us a man who has a paralyzed hand. Man has a paralyzed hand. Look, and Matthew says this in, in, a, in a, 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 a sentence with no finite verbs. So I just, tra- almost every English uh, translation sort of smooths it out, but I just translate it literally so that you see the way Matthew says it. And look, a man having a shriveled hand. It just meant to grab our attention. Look, a man with a shriveled hand. Meant in our minds to see this picture. Here's a man with obviously uh, atrophied hand. And we're to think, what of it then? What's going to come of this? What's the significance of his presence? Uh, Well, think about him having a paralyzed hand and Luke seeming to tell the same story. Luke specifies it was his right hand and assuming he was right-handed, well, having a, uh, literally the Greek says dried up, but that's the idea that means it's paralyzed, it's atrophied, it's shriveled, it's useless. He can't do anything with it. He's still got it, but it's useless to him. 
So with a useless right hand, how many jobs could he do in that day? You know, he couldn't answer phones. He couldn't, he couldn't be the greeter at Walmart, you know. I mean, what, what could he do with a useless right hand? Uh, most jobs are, are manual labor. What does manual mean? It means by hand, and he's missing one of his hands. One of his hands is unusable. Well, it's a rough place to be in in a day like that, right? Don't, wouldn't you seeing that? Wouldn't that draw out your... Well, what is that grace? What's the word for that grace that should rise in us when we see someone in misery? What, what should a godly heart feel? Compassion and mercy. Compassion and mercy. Well, shouldn't that draw out compassion and mercy in a godly person? Well, surely these godly leaders, the, the cream of the crop, the great focused, intent students of Scripture, surely they will lead the way in feeling mercy for this man. Well, he has a shriveled hand. They have a question, we see. And they question him, the man with the hand? No, Jesus. They don't talk to the man with the hand. They're not concerned about the man with the hand. They're just concerned about Jesus. Oh, you think how sweet. They're concerned about Jesus. Oh, no, read on. And they question him saying, is it allowable to heal on the Sabbath? Now, some Jews, you, you, you hear that answer and you think, well, duh, <laughs> of course it is. But actually, some Jews would say, no, that would be a work. You don't do medicine. You don't do healing on the Sabbath. Uh, and then some would say, well, yes, if it's a relative. Or really, probably the, the majority answer would be yes, if it's a matter of imminent life or death. If the person's life is in imminent peril, well, then you could do some act of healing. Well, is his life in imminent peril? No. Probably had that hand for some time, and he's not about to die because of it. So this doesn't fit that category. In fact, in, in Luke chapter 13, verse 14, a synagogue leader actually says that. It's kind of funny, I mean, from one angle. But here, here God is healing people. And he gets up and he says, look, look, people, people, there's six days you can come and get healed. Come on, one of those days. You know, like telling God to stop healing people because it's a Sabbath. Uh, but uh, yeah, they could have said that then to this guy. He could have come, come back at sundown and get healed. This is, this is not an emergency. So that's the premise of their question and the backdrop in Jewish understanding at the time. It's not such a slam dunk that healing would be allowable, and if it were allowable, probably only uh, when life is in risk, and his life is not in risk, not an imminent risk. He has a withered hand. They have a question. Oh, they have one more thing. What is it they have? They have a motive. Everybody has a motive. Matthew tells us what theirs is. In order that they might accuse him. Well, there it is. They ask this question that they might accuse him. You know, you sometimes hear people say there are no bad questions. Wrong. You hear people say there are no stupid questions. Wrong. Uh, one example would be a question that's already been answered. <laughs> Another example would be a question you don't want the answer to. <laughs> and this is kind of both of those, isn't it? As they ask him, well, is it allowable to heal on the Sabbath? Uh, they don't really want the answer to the question. They just want, well, what does Matthew say? That they might accuse him. Now, accuse him meaning not just that they might say, oh, look, he's a bad, bad man. 
they mean, he means that they might have evidence they can bring in a trial. That's, that's the nuance of this word. It's the word that's used of, of lodging charges in a trial. They want evidence to bring it a trial. But, but they, so they want evidence. What do they already have? They've already got the verdict. <laughs> they just need the evidence. Which reminds me of a line from one of my favorite westerns. That is kind of a long list, I'll admit. But one of my favorite westerns is Silverado. And there's a line where a corrupt sheriff in it named Cobb has arrested a, a black man. And having arrested him, he assures him. And he says, we're going to give you a fair trial, followed by a first-class hanging. A fair trial, followed by a first-class hanging. He's already got the verdict, just needs to go through the formalities, and that's these guys here. Or, in a more philosophical way, some of you might have heard of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. That's where the, the line, a loaf of bread, a jug of wine, and thou comes from. Well, I like this part better, uh, and, but the, the, the language is a little dense, so I'll read it a couple of times. Uh, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, he writes, Myself when young did eagerly frequent doctor and sage and heard great argument about it and about, but evermore came out by the same door wherein I went. Myself, when young, did eagerly frequent doctor and saint and heard great argument about it and about, but evermore came out by the same door wherein I went. He started with an assumption and he ended with the assumption. And the argument is just what filled the two points in the circle. He went in through a door and he came out the same door. And they go in through the door of Jesus is guilty and needs to be dealt with finally. And they come out with that same thing. Doesn't matter what he answers. They've already got their verdict. And that is the motive behind their question. So this setup leads right where uh, a good Jesus watcher would predict it would lead. Letter B, the setup leads to the smackdown. Here's the setup, and now we have the smackdown. Jesus responds. It never goes like they hope. When they try to set Jesus up, you'd think that they would figure this out, but it never goes the way they want. It's always a bad idea. So verses 11 and 12 give us the smackdown. <clears throat> First, uh, we see Jesus' response, and he responds in three parts. He asks two questions and then comes to one conclusion. His first question is in verse 11. But he said to them, which man will be from among you who will have one sheep? And if this sheep falls on the Sabbath into a pit, will he not grasp it and raise it up? Now, the answer he expects is yes, of course he would do that. And the, the language seems to point to it's his only sheep. He's got one sheep. A lot of English versions skip that. It might be a Hebraism, but it also could be very literal. He's just got the one sheep, and the one sheep falls into the pit. Was well, he going to just leave it there for wolves to get or something bad to happen to, or is he going to pull it out? And Jesus' assumption is they're going to pull it out. But once again, Jewish opinion was uh, divided. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumranian community. They would have said flat no. Nope, you leave the sheep there on the Sabbath. And then a more middling answer would come from many of the rabbis, but, but their answer would amount to, well, you can help it work its way out. You, you can put things in the pit that it could climb up out on, but you don't actually pull it out. You, you let it work its own way out. Or you might throw food in there so it doesn't starve 
until the Sabbath passes. So again, the answers uh, of formal Judaism were not one, but Jesus isn't answering, isn't asking formal Judaism. He says, which one of you? He's asking, what, what do they actually do? And the Pharisees were very materialistic, and, and uh, the odds are Jesus knew from observation that if one of their animals fell into a pit, why they would just pull that animal out, even if it fell in on the Sabbath. They would have that much concern about an animal, an animal, just a sheep who's nothing but property to them. That's his first question. Now his second question, verse 12a. Therefore, how much more does a man matter than a sheep? Well, this is a biblical question, isn't it? It's interesting that today that question wouldn't be easy to answer. You know, the PETA people, or PETA, they say a, a, a dog is a pig is a boy. You know, it's, it's all, we're all just animals. It doesn't really differ that much. But to somebody with a biblical perspective, how much more does a man matter than a sheep? Well, is the sheep in the image of God? No. no Genesis 1.26 says we're made in God's image. Genesis 9.6 says even after the fall, even after the flood, we're still in God's image. And that image gives infinite value as far as, as, as this creation goes. So that if somebody kills an image of God, murders an image of God, well, his life is forfeit. There's no fine he can pay that evens that up uh, because the value is, is limitless. And so how much more is a man worth than a sheep? And so if you saw a sheep fall into a pit on the Sabbath, would you not pull the sheep out? Okay, well, how much more is a man worth than a sheep? A man created in God's image. But you see, I'm going to say this a few times in a few different ways. Legalism doesn't see a a, a needy man. Legalism does not see a suffering man in need of help. It just sees a thing. It It sees a problem. It sees an issue. It doesn't see a human being in God's image. Very important to see. We'll we'll look at this a few times. So it's a good question, uh, but the people he's asking have dead consciences. So his two questions lead to his conclusion in verse 12b. Wherefore, it is allowable. And he kind of takes that word of, of theirs. It's their word. Well, why are your disciples doing what it's not allowable to do on the Sabbath? Well, is it allowable to, uh, to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus answers the one by saying, well, David had bre- ate bread that's not allowable to eat. And here he says it's allowable to do good on the Sabbath. That's his conclusion. It's allowable on the Sabbath to do good. And that on the Sabbath is, is kind of fronted. It's emphasized. On the Sabbath, what you ought to do is you ought to do good. That's allowable. Well, that's some subtle, cutting sarcasm going on there. But that uh, you find a lot of sarcasm in the Bible. Uses their word, throws it right back at them. And now, so, now have you been keeping count? He's laid them low again and again. In, in the first story, he laid them low straight from Scripture three times. Here he lays them low just from common sense. And how do they respond to it? What, what is going to, to happen in them? You know, if you look at it truly, it's, it's really a wonderful opportunity. They've got a wonderful opportunity to learn, see things that they've been blind to all their lives, make a wonderful change Godward. Is that what they're going to do? God incarnate has set them straight again and again and again. Well, what does Jesus do next? Because the next, it's not recorded that they answered his question. And it's not recorded that he waited for an answer. 
he didn't need their advice. <laughs> he wasn't needing their, he wasn't answering, asking for their input so he could figure out what to do. He knew what he was going to do. They knew what he was going to do. And he does it in verse 13. Then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored, healthy as the other hand. Yeah, there's so much to see here. But the one thing is, who is it who speaks to the man? Only Jesus. What do they do? They talk about the man. He's just a, he's a thing to them. He's a prop. He's, he's something to be used. He's a situation. The situation of a guy needing healing. He speaks to the man. He sees the man, and he tells the man to stretch out his hand. And stretching out his hand, the man is healed. The, the hand is restored healthy just like the other. Now, there's a lot to learn there, um, and I'm not even in the the uh, application part yet, but notice that Jesus does not kneel to the rage mob. Jesus does not kneel to the rage mob. He does not throw little pennies of compromise and palliation to the rage mob. He could have. We'll talk about that a little bit later. He could have gone halfway, but he didn't. He could have given them a little of what they wanted and still done what he wanted, but he didn't. He didn't at all. He healed the man. And, and, and in so doing, would you say that, what did he do that was work? What part of his body moved in this healing? Just his mouth? Is it allowable to say stuff on the Sabbath? I think they agreed on that one. Is it allowable to stretch out your hand on the Sabbath? Well, I think it was. I don't remember a law against that one. So they're happy, right? Because nobody worked. Oh, no. They're not happy at all. Let her see the shattering. But the Pharisees came out and took counsel together against him in order that they might destroy him. The shattering. Did they say to each other, well, you know, he didn't by any definition work, so we're going to have to look for something else. No. No, because remember, they already had their verdict. They already had their verdict. They'd already decided about Jesus. They'd made up their mind about Jesus. So uh, whatever he did, um, he was going to be guilty. Now, why do I call it a shattering, though? They wouldn't have called it a shattering. They would have said, we're fine. We're doing exactly what we need to do. We are, we are healthy. We're holy. We're happy. And uh, other happy H words. We're all those things. And um, we got a job, and we're doing it. And it's going well. Thank you for asking. But no, but in reality, God sees them as, as shattered, and they're heading for shattering. Scripture says this, because why are they doing what they're doing? They're, it's sheer pride. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But they're just operating out of sheer pride. Jesus has humiliated them. Their pride is wounded, so Jesus must die. And in their killing Jesus, they destroy themselves. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And this is exactly what is animating them. Pride. What did Jesus said to John the Baptist in chapter 11? Blessed is he who doesn't stumble over me. And look at them stumbling over Jesus. It means they won't be blessed. What's the opposite of blessed? Cursed. And they're stumbling over Jesus and they will shatter you know, I remind you, Jesus' words always bring us to a decision. They always do. Absolutely always. Whether we're conscious of it or not. They always bring, because we always respond 
to Jesus' words. And they respond to Jesus' words, and their response is they need to destroy him. And that will be the end of them. As the sequel will show, the next stories in chapter 12 will show, show us the fatal direction that they're plummeting into here. So, these are the facts of the story then. This is the exposition of this passage. Now let's talk uh, about how we make application of it, Roman numeral 2. What, what does this teach us? How do we apply it? Well, the first thing, the title of the sermon is Legalism's Loveless Calculations. And so the first application is Legalism's Insidious Math. Legalism's Insidious Math, M-A-T-H. The way legalism's, legalism makes additions and subtractions. The value that legalism puts on different objects. Uh, I want to talk with you about the core of legalism and do that by pointing out a word that occurs five times in this section if we go back one verse. <clears throat> verse 8, the conclusion of the first section, what does Jesus say? He says, someone is the Lord of the Sabbath. Who does he say? The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Oh, and then look, here's the word man four times in this passage. Verse 10, anthropos. Look, a man having a shriveled hand. Verse 10. Verse 11, he says, which man will not pull a sheep out of a pit? Verse 12, how much more does a man matter than a sheep? And then verse 13, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. Well, God sees a man there. And the Son of Man sees a man there. But what did they see there? Did they see a man? No, they don't. And much less did they see a man in misery. Much less did they see a man who should be shown mercy. Yes, even on the Sabbath. What do they see? They see an issue. They see a, 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 an opportunity, in fact. An opportunity to get Jesus. Because what matters most to them? The glory of God? No. Love of their neighbor? No. Vindicating their pride. That's what matters most to them. And for that, Jesus must die because he's wounded their pride. And so this man isn't even there as a man. He's a thing, he's a pawn, he's an object to be used in their pursuits of their concerns, you see. So his affliction is not a need to try to meet. It is an opportunity to exploit in their eyes. That's the loveless math of legalism. And so this is something that I, I bet in your own mind you're making applications today because you know that a great many people who position themselves as great uh, advocates of downtrodden minorities and so forth, they don't see people in need. They're not trying to help people with their real needs. They're using something about them for their own quest for power and influence. Their, their skin color, their situation, their living circumstances, they're things they can use to position themselves for power. But they don't see them as people created in the image of God to be treated according to God's word. And so here, legalism doesn't see this man as a needy man. It sees him as an opportunity, something that can be used as a club to get Jesus with. 
So, first of all, the core of legalism uh, is seen in this calculation that makes this man an issue and not a man. That's the core of legalism. What is the conundrum that this raises? Well, the conundrum is in a, in a situation like this that, that on the surface is complicated. Well, do we love God or do we love man? Do we, do we love God, which would require a certain Sabbath obedience to the legalists, or do we love this man who's in need? And, and often people split into two directions. The legalists will say that they are most concerned about the love of God, and so they forget about the man. That's certainly their case here, right? They don't even talk to the man. They just ask about the issue. Is it lawful to heal him? The man doesn't matter to them, and they would tell you it's because they love God so much. So, so because they love God so much, the man just kind of fades into insignificance. Now, to bring in somebody not in this story, but, but people we know, Think of progressives. Think, think of, that's what liberals call themselves. Liberals are progressives. They're very concerned about the needs of people, about people's felt needs or the needs as they see them. And in their concern for meeting these needs, they will marginalize or play with or pervert or completely sweep aside God and God's word because they're so concerned about the person. So to the, the, the liberal, the person is everything. God is marginal. To the legalist here, what they call God is everything. The person is marginal. And what is the solution uh, of this? Should we love God or should we love man? And uh, immediately you're thinking, well, that's a false dichotomy. We need to do both. But there's always that pull. And even people who have the answer basically right can end up losing sight of what the cure to this really is. What is the cure? Well, you know I'm going to say it's Jesus, and, and indeed I do, because that is the cure. Jesus is the cure. He personally is the cure, and he teaches us and demonstrates for us what the cure is. He says it in words, and he shows it. So, of course, the cure is that we should do both, and we should do it in the order Jesus says. Meaning, first we're going to love God, and secondly we're going to love man, and we're not going to play them off against each other. And, and if we think, well, sometimes they do, no, they really never do. They never really do play off against each other, as I, I, I hope to explain to you. They never really do play off against each other. They both go hand in hand. God, of course, is most worthy of our, of our love. He is the most worthy. He, he's our starting place. He's God, uh, and he's most glorious. So, of course, we love him first, and, and because he is who he is, we want to worship him first and value him above all, but also we want to go to him to find out how to think about things and, and what to do about things. We don't know. I mean, that's, that's part of becoming a Christian. You deny yourself, and you begin with the fear of the Lord, and you say to God, I want to know what you think. I want to know what you say is right and wrong and what you say is wise and foolish so that I can think that after you. And so we look at the needs of our fellow men instructed by God as to what those needs are and not, not asking them what their deepest needs are because what they will answer will not be what God would answer. And so uh, we love God first, but because we love him and we really do, we're convinced that the only way for humans to really be happy and the only way for humans really to be blessed is to walk with God, 
right? Is to know God. We know the best thing for our fellow man is that that fellow man believe in and obey God. The best way to live is for him to live from the fear of God and in love for God and in faith in God and submission to God. So we will never think, well, well, the best thing I can do for my needy neighbor is to tell him to sin or to tell him to feel good about sin or to help him sin. But this is exactly what progressives do. Well, they, they, they need this and this, so I'm going to give. But in giving them this, I'm encouraging them to sin. Well, I do it because I love them. Well, no, you don't. If you're encouraging them to do something that will damage them and damn them, is that love? Often it's cowardice and weakness and ignorance and unbelief. No, the best thing I can do for my needy neighbor is to help him with God and to help him with the needs that I can, but always starting from the love for God. And so it really is not either or, it really is both and. And so we have issues today, obviously, with, with, say, homosexuality and others, where people are saying that they're miserable and they feel like they need this and that. And the Christian position says, well, but that's, you, you, you can't. Okay, let me, let me put it a, 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 a kind of a graceless way. I mean, a, a bald way. Say, well, you can't do that. You can't do that. Okay, so we're telling somebody that they, their deepest need that they think will make them happy, they can't do that. Is that everything that we should say to that person? Well, no, what, where we're really coming from is we're not saying, hey, you know, I'm religious, so I really don't want to see you happy. <laughs> because, you know, that's important to me as a religious person, not ever to see anyone else happy. Uh, that's, that's my kind of ministry. I go around making sure people are miserable. No, it's, it's I'm coming from because I believe God. And God says that this way will end in your, in your destruction as a person because God, God did not create you for this. And in your doom, and damnation as an individual, and I don't want that for you. So I say what I say out of love for God and love for the person. They're not in conflict. But we, and when I say we, of course what I really mean is you and me, (laughs) is we have to constantly watch that we not be tempted to see issues and to see things and situations and sins and to forget that we're looking at people. And, and we may look at something like what I just mentioned and say, well, you know, I have never felt tempted to do that in my entire life. I think that's disgusting. Okay, have you ever been tempted to sin ever? Yes. <laughs> Is it disgusting to God? Yes. <laughs> have you felt really strongly tempted, even obsessed at times? Yes. Oh, okay, so you're kind of cut out of the same thing. But mercy was a good thing for you, right? What about this person? You can't show mercy to this person in showing this person to find the same mercy you, a sinner, found? So they're all sins. They, they may differ in what vine they're hanging from, but they're really all in the same trunk. Uh, and so um, it's, it shouldn't be an either-or for us. We should never forget when we talk about sin, we're not just talking about situations, or we're going to be standing with the Pharisees asking if it's legal to, to heal on the Sabbath instead of caring for somebody in need and loving God at the same time. So the cure is Jesus, who did both, who obviously loved God above all and who met the person's lead in a God, a person's need in a God-honoring way. So first we have seen legalism's insidious math that doesn't even see a person, just sees a situation, an opportunity, 
and a question. And what an ugly thing that is when you hear us Christians starting to talk about people as if they're things, as if they're things in categories, instead of people suffering in the misery of sin, needing the same merciful salvation that we found and deserving it just as much as we did. Amen? Which is not at all. Letter B, pride's implacable, three things. Pride's implacable, meaning you can't pacify it, you can't quiet it down, you can't make it stop. First, pride's implacable malignity. (laughs) Sorry. Malignity, but it's just the best word, and also I need three words starting with an M, so here we go. Malignity, M-A-L-I-G-N-I-T-Y. M-A-L-I-G-N-I-T-Y. And you say, what does that mean? And I say, it's the quality of being malign. Okay. Uh, it's, it's the quality. It's, it's inherent destructiveness. It's, it's something that is inherently evil, inherently destructive, and pride is inherently evil. It's inherently destructive. So these men, think about it, these men were wrong about the Sabbath and a great many other things. And confronting Jesus, if you look at it just very objectively, they had opportunity after opportunity to be humbled and to learn what they needed to learn. And they could have been. If, if, if they had been led by the humility of, of wisdom when Jesus corrected them, they would have accepted the correction and humbled themselves and learned and been transformed by it. That's if the humility of wisdom had responded, but it didn't. What led them was pride. And to pride, pride bristles and raises itself to its full height and fury and defends itself. Humility humbles itself, bows and accepts the lesson. Pride raises up tooths, teeth and claws to defend itself against the lesson. And that's exactly what they did. So if they'd responded in humility, then they would have been humbled, which is a blessed state. Instead, they responded in pride and Jesus humiliated them. They still were dead wrong and everybody could see it, but they didn't see it. And so uh, I gave you in, in your email Philip's axioms. One of Philip's axioms is don't be the last to know when you're wrong. And that's them. <laughs> Everybody knew it, but not them. They were too proud and they wouldn't admit it. So these are the wise and comprehending Jesus talked about back in, in uh, chapter 11. These are the ones who don't see because God hides it from them. And uh, Proverbs 18.12 warns, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. But humility comes before honor. But they're not humble. They're proud. Proverbs 28.14, Blessed is the one who fears Yahweh always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. They're not walking in the fear of God. They harden their hearts, and so they will, they will fall. Now, two more of Philip's uh, Uh, axioms, the one I think about most often is number two. When you sin or do something really foolish, you have two choices. Repent, forsake, and rectify, or start an endless cycle of doubling down degradation, and most people do the latter. And that's what they do. That's what they do. They double down. And then also Philip's axiom number 23, anyone can be taught except the dead and the proud. And they're one of those. Everyone can be taught except the dead and the proud. And they're proud, so they don't learn. 
That's the malignity of pride. Pride is destructive. And, and here's the thing about before we move on. It doesn't announce itself that way. Pride sounds like your best friend. Pride slips its arm around your shoulders and cuddles in close because it's just got your best interests in heart. And you hear some word of God you don't want to hear, and pride says, that's not for you. He doesn't understand you and your situation. You don't deserve to be talked to like that. And pride just pats us on our fat little heads and sends us on our way towards our own shattering. That's pride's malignity. Secondly, pride's implacable mayhem. Mayhem, M-A-Y-H-E-M, is the damage done to others. And it does damage to them. Uh, It does damage to them. It does internal mayhem on them. Sin at its bottom is irrational. Have you you really thought that through and felt just how, how true that always is? At its bottom, sin is always irrational. Always although it always makes perfect sense to the person who's sinning. Put yourself back with me to Genesis chapter 3, and you are standing there just as Adam begins to reach out for the fruit. And you throw yourself in between him and the fruit, and you say, hold on, Dad. Hello? You say, hold on, Dad. Think this through. Now, the person who created, not just created, the person who designed the universe, who, who thought out what everything would mean and be and do, and who designed that tree and who designed you, that person whose voice you've heard, who said to you, you can eat anything growing in this garden, well, except for this one thing, That's the one thing you don't need to eat. That's the one thing you need not to eat. If you eat that thing, you will surely die. That person has told you what that means and not to eat that thing. That person designed you. You only exist because he made you the way he made you. So he knows everything about how you work, everything about how that fruit works. He knows everything about how everything works because it's all his. And you've been alive all of... What now? You've got a well of experience and knowledge spanning minutes, hours, days, but you're ready to pit your wisdom against him. Now, that's not even my question. That's my premise. My question is, how do you ever see this ending well? How do you ever see this ending well? If, he, if he's mad, where will you run? His creation. Where will you hide behind his creation? How will you escape his sentence? He's your creator. And he says, huh? And reaches out and eats it anyway. Because that's sin. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you cause yourself a lot of misery. And I have to just remind myself that over and over and over again that after Minutes or hours of miserable thinking, I have to say, you know what you're doing? You're trying to make sin make sense. You're trying to figure out how this sin makes sense. Why did this person do this thing? Really, the answer is because he's a sinner. And I've seen it in my own heart, so I don't know right up front what this, how it works, right? Sin is never rational. Now, them, you know, I'm not just... Apply this to here. I'm just trying to make sense out of their thinking. <laughs> They're going into a synagogue... 
with a man with a withered hand, they're going to try to trick Jesus into healing this man. Healing him how? So, in other words, they're in no doubt that he has the power to heal the man. They know he, he does miraculous works. They know that he's, he, he does that sort of thing. He'll be moved by mercy because he, he's a good man. So they know he's got the power of God and he's got the character of God. And how can we work this to get him? How does that make sense to you? How does any of that make sense? But it doesn't make any sense because sin doesn't make sense. And pride makes us deaf to that and makes us blind to that. If he works, if Jesus works and heals this man, how is he doing that? He's doing it by the power of God. But they want to condemn him for doing this by the power of God. What sense does that make? It doesn't have to make sense. It's sin, so it sounds good to them. It's, it makes perfect sense to them, you see. And, and, and even then, like I say, when he finally does it, what work does he do? He does it in a way that involves no work. So the whole thing just fell apart. Your whole brilliant plan just fell apart. Nope, doesn't slow him up a bit. Oh, boy, we got him now. And they go off to destroy him. You think, boy, is that stupid. Well, if you think that, you know, find a mirror somewhere, because you and I, every time we sin, it is just as stupid as that. It is just as stupid as that. And the angels look at us and say, how does that make sense? But that's sin. That's the nature of sin. And that's pride. Sin is irrational and pride blinds us to that fact. And makes, pride makes sin look like the very pinnacle of sound thinking, which they thought they were doing, you see. But that's sin. And that's why we need the grace of God. You can't reason somebody to salvation. You can't do it. It takes a work of the grace of God changing the heart so they don't care and this is this is the history of israel you know god sends prophets and people mock them and don't listen generation after generation proverbs even warns don't reprove a scoffer or he will hate you and this is they hate jesus because he reproves them so pride's implacable mayhem and finally number three pride pride's implacable malice and that is the harm it wishes on others What does it say about these great and holy leaders that they see this poor man and they just know that Jesus is going to want to heal him? They have no doubts that Jesus is going to be able to heal him and they care absolutely nothing about whether he goes home healed and able to have a life. That means nothing to them. His miserable life means nothing to them. His lack of opportunities, his self, the way he sees himself as a man, means nothing to them. All they care about is getting Jesus. And what does it say about them that all they care about is getting Jesus? Well, he's wounded their pride, so he must die. And that's just the way it goes. So, apparently, in their masterful ethical universe it is not allowable to heal a man by the power of god on the sabbath but it is allowable to go out and plan the murder of the messiah on the sabbath that's okay that's what they do using exactly the same thing jesus does flapping their gums and all jesus does is say stretch out your hand but he's broken the sabbath but them plotting Messiah's murder, A-OK. Really holy and righteous. Well, that's what sin and that's what pride do.
And the third thing that I want us to see from this letter C is God's insistent mercy. God's insistent mercy. And the first is so obvious that we uh, probably miss it. I sure did. But have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus just being there is a mercy? (laughs) Jesus just being there in that Sabbath is a mercy? Being in that synagogue? Uh, I remind you, something greater than the temple has walked into that synagogue. And and why? Because he stood to learn something from them? (laughs) No. See, he's the only person there who has nothing to learn from anybody. He's the only person ever walked into a synagogue who had nothing to learn, literally, from anybody there who could not be profited in any way by anybody there. There was nobody there who could do a single thing for Jesus. But he was there because as the perfect man, he wanted to worship God. And as the perfect man, he wanted to show love for his neighbor. And to do that, he had to be where his neighbor was. Literally nothing to learn. Literally nothing needed. Literally perfect. And still he goes to synagogue. What is that? It's a blistering indictment of everybody who doesn't go to church because it just has too many problems. There's just too many hypocrites. They just don't teach right. They don't teach well enough. I talked to a person who's very proud of himself. He, 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 he couldn't go to any church just because he knew that in a short while he'd see too many things that weren't being done right. And so he just couldn't go at all. So, so he was so righteous and so holy that the best thing to do was absolutely flat out disobey God because he's too good to go to a church. So sin is much better than obedience. And, and that makes sense. Pride makes things like that make sense. But here's Jesus and he goes to synagogue. See, this is... How many Christians even think this way? How many Christians even would think of thinking this way? Not to go because of the way all my needs and wants are met but to go to worship God and to serve others. Well, and people look at that and say, well, I don't don't see that I need that, so I won't go. And Jesus, who absolutely didn't need it, (laughs) went because he loved God and he loved people. And that's where you worship God and that's where you serve people. What a blistering indictment of everyone who looks for reasons not to go to church instead of doing everything he can to get himself to church and be there to worship God and to serve people. So Jesus being there was a mercy, and of course what Jesus did there was a mercy. I've pointed out in the past that in the Gospels, Jesus' most characteristic emotion that they talk about is is what? It's compassion. Splunknizomai, that's the verb you see the most. His, His insides are moved with compassion for those in misery, and he wants to show them mercy. That's his most characteristic emotion. And so... They don't even see this man in his misery, but Jesus sees this man. And isn't it just perverse to know, to, to notice that they knew he would, but they didn't. They only saw him as something to use, but they knew he'd see him as someone to help. And they hated him for it. What does that say? But at any rate, my point is, Jesus uh, did a mercy. He, he saw a man with a need, not just a question. And so what does this show? that Jesus was exactly right when he said in the previous story that they they didn't even get Hosea 6.6 at all. I want mercy and not sacrifice. They did not get that at all. And here's another situation where they 
show it. They don't love God. They don't love their neighbor. What he did was a mercy, and now I want to develop what I've mentioned before. He could so easily have compromised. He could so easily have said, well, I don't want to offend you unnecessarily. I want to try to build a bridge to you. So I'll tell you what, my good man, here's where I'm going to be. Here's my card. Uh, But here's where I'm going to be tonight. Soon as the sun sets, you come find me, and I will fix up that hand for you. Sabbath not broken. Man's need met. He can wait a few hours, right? But does Jesus do that? No. He is not interested in placating the rage mob. He's interested in showing mercy on this man and showing love for God in the doing. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. What he did was a mercy. No compromise. Just love. Love for God. Love for the man. And so finally, and my final point is the imperative then is mercy now. Jesus says sarcastically to them, well, it is allowable to do good on the Sabbath. Well, it's really kind of, when you, okay, let me first say, when he says it's allowable to do good on the Sabbath, what's the flip side of that coin? It's not allowable not to do good on the Sabbath. Now, is there any scripture about that? Actually, yeah, there's several. Uh, Proverbs 3.27 is one. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Oh, so in other words, if I see someone needing and I have what he needs, I need to give it. I need to do it. Did Jesus see someone needy? Did he have what he needed? Well, there is an imperative to do it. And there's one to us like that, Galatians 6.10. Wherefore then, as we have opportunity, let us work what is good for all, and especially for those of the household of faith. And that's what Jesus did. He had an opportunity. He wasn't going to make the man wait six hours, 12 hours, whatever. He was going to meet the need then. Show mercy, love God, love his neighbor. So let me wrap this up in, in conclusion. God is pleased, so we've, we've, we've raised the issue, love God or love man, and the answer is yes, do that, and do that in that order. God is pleased with obedience that is born of faith in him, love to him, submission to his word. God is nauseated. God is sick to his stomach with calculated, self-absorbed, self-centered pretenses and hypocrisy and preciseness that sees things and issues and not people. That disgusts him, seeing people as objects and quantities, not caring about their welfare. That doesn't show his love or his mercy, and so it shows no love for him. And, and let me take one last of a, a, a little twist here to leave you with this thought, that what they wanted to do with Jesus and the reason they wanted to do it is what they really needed to do with their own wannabe God selves and what we need to do with our own wannabe God selves. They wanted to, to destroy Jesus because Jesus stood in between them and what they really wanted. But we need to see that what we really need is Jesus. And what stands between us and him is our own little wannabe God ego. 
And that's why the first thing Jesus says, if you want to follow me, what do you do? Deny yourself, take up your cross. So they want to destroy Jesus so they can get what we want, what they want. But what we really need is Jesus, and so we need to destroy ourselves. And Jesus says, whoever loses his life, same verb, will find it. And so uh, there it is. They are loving themselves and not loving God and not loving Jesus. So legalism's loveless calculations. Just take a few moments then to reflect on this and make, jot down any final thoughts or to-dos, and then I'll close this in prayer. First, Father, we thank you for your great mercy towards us. Think of Ephesians 2 that says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us made us alive together with Christ. And we see Christ is our mediator and Christ is our peace. And Christ is how you raised us up out of the miry clay and bought us out of the slave house of sin and forgave us and made us your children. That was compassion. Your compassions are innumerable and your mercy reaches to the heaven. And as we love you, help us to learn to show the same love towards others and not to look at people in a calculating way, not to see people as things and issues, but to see people as needy fellow creatures in the image of God and to love them and to have compassion on them and to want to show them mercy. And let us never forget, Father, the greatest mercy we can always show someone is to help him find his way to you to the best of our ability, to tell them the word of God, show them the love of God, point them to the Son of God, along with dealing and helping in all of the physical needs that we can. Help us to learn this lesson and learn to walk the road that Jesus has laid out before us. In Jesus' name, amen.